The reading this morning is from Daniel chapter 4, verses 19 through to 37. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. And let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven. And seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for, confirmed for you from the time that you, you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the, words, the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. 
Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honour the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Amen. Now I'm not even going to ask if you have pride in your heart, because we are all proud. Whether we are more prone to self-promotion, like a celebrity or two, or prone to self-pity, or maybe even a little bit of both. Our pride comes out in different ways. But at the same time, as believers, we also possess humility too, because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts. We know our personal unworthiness before God, and we rely on his mercy. So we're an odd mix of both pride and humility. And we'll think this morning from our passage and the theme of Daniel 4 about pride in four ways. Pride concealed, revealed, corrected, and resurrected. So first of all then, C.S. Lewis famously expressed this subject in his book, Mere Christianity. There is one vice, says Lewis, of which no man in the world is free, which everyone loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault that makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. According to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Well, you don't hold back there, CS. But he's right. I think, and that Christians, healthy Christians, are at least aware that they're proud and are against their pride. But it still pains me to admit that I am a proud man. I don't want to be. I shouldn't be. Nothing to be proud about. All I have is of grace as an unearned gift from God. So my new heart in Christ fights it, but then my old sinful nature fights back. So I can try to hide it, or suppress it, or disguise it, but it will always 
come out. Can you relate to that? Well, it's when we know that we're proud that we can at least seek to combat it and pray against it. I mean, how quickly can you shake off a snub or a perceived one at least when somebody apparently snubs you or gives you a cutting retort? How easily can you let it go? Or do you fume a while inside at the audacity? How long until you pray it out of your system? Well, however you may struggle, are you as proud as you could be? No. Are you growing in humility? Yes. As a believer, the Spirit is at work in you. C.S. Lewis also said that the vain person wants praise, applause, admiration too much and is always angling for it, but that the real diabolical pride comes when you look down on others so much that you do not care what they think of you. And that's worth remembering. So perhaps only the most blatant of unrepentant egotism may need confronting in others. And that best dealt with as a church discipline issue. But should we be pointing at each other's pride struggles and calling someone that's annoying us a pompous prat? Well, maybe if we were called harsh church and didn't care anything about grace. But since we know that isn't going to help them or you, that it won't do any good, only harm, then let's just love and pray for one another, shall we? We want to point one another to the one who's pardoned us and to the one who is changing us. And what about God? What does he have to say directly about pride? Well, Proverbs 8.13 teaches that God hates arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. And that pride comes before destruction and an arrogant spirit before a fall. Proverbs 16.18. So secondly then, let's think about pride revealed. Well, if there's a memorable character apart from Zlatan who didn't bother to hide his pride, it was King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And in one sense, it is small wonder that he didn't. He was one of the most powerful men from an earthly perspective that's ever lived. 
I don't think even Caesar had such sway over his vast kingdom, his empire. And just look at the description of the tree in the dream that Daniel interprets for him in verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, says Daniel, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And this, in some ways, is a picture of the way life should be. A kind of shalom under Nebuchadnezzar's rule. And you can almost see the king's head expand that little bit more. And his chest puff out that little further as he heard this explanation. That his other magicians could not give. So I am the tree. Well, that makes sense, Daniel. He must have thought. I do bring this kind of order and prosperity to my world. This is an accurate picture you're painting here. But how the king's face must have drooped when Daniel went on to remind him that as that tree, he was also the one to be chopped down with only a stump of him left in the earth. Daniel also counsels the king to change his ways that his current prosperity may be lengthened. So perhaps the king started off with good intentions turning from some of his wickedness and beginning to treat the poor better. But then the months went by and maybe he thought, I'm doing okay. Or perhaps he eventually forgot all about the dream and its potential consequences. Because verse 29 says that one year later, he's on his palace roof and he starts to humble brag. Well, we bit more than a humble brag, I think. Now, if you don't know the difference between uh, a humble brag and an out-and-out -out brag, then 10 years ago now, Harris Whittles wrote a book called Humble Brag, The Art of False Modesty. In it, he poked fun at people on social media who pretended to be humble, but were clearly boasting about something. And one of those celebrities was called, uh, is called Tila Tequila, a Lamborghini-owning singer who was somewhat prone to the humble brag. I hate my Lambo, she posted. Police is always pulling me over just cause it's a Lambo. So they're always thinking I'm speeding, but I'm not. To which Whittles replied, stop it. 
But on she went. I think they just want to talk to me. Oh, okay, I'm done with this Lambo. I'm buying a 1988 brown Toyota Corolla. Whittle's reply, please stop it. But, man, this is so unfair. Why did the Lambo dealership not tell me I'd get pulled over at least once a week in this car? Time for a Corolla, LOL. Whittles, seriously, please? But Nebuchadnezzar was definitely more uh, prone to the out-and-out kind of brag. And he let rip in verse 30. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And there's no doubt that it was a fantastic place to behold. Nebuchadnezzar's wife had hailed from a mountainous area in Media, while Babylon was pretty much as flat as Amsterdam. So he had built the spectacular hanging gardens of Babylon to recreate that familiar mountain experience. And it took its place among the seven wonders of the ancient world. So why is Nebuchadnezzar boasting over Babylon such a big deal? Well, it's because he's stealing. God is bothered about boasting because it's stealing. Because it's been the grace of God that's allowed the king to build Babylon and make Babylon beautiful. It was all that God had enabled him to achieve. What God had ordained that he accomplish. But the king claimed exclusive bragging rights when he bellowed, it's by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. And so failed to acknowledge the true artist behind the scenes that had given him all the ideas and allowed him to create this great work of art. Nebuchadnezzar is responsible for his own sins, but everything good that he did came from God. If you stole a piece of art that a great artist had painted and then boasted that it was your work, then the owner would be within his or her rights to have you arrested. How much more a holy God and we steal the credit of our achievements from him and then pass them off as our own.
So all your success and everyone else's success in life is a gift of grace. And so boasting about our success is theft because it's claiming something that isn't ours to claim. They're not our achievements. They're not our victories. They're his achievements, his victories in us and through us. So pride unchecked denies grace. And denying grace leads us far from God. And that's why Paul is so keen that we understand how grace works in Ephesians 2. So that we don't boast in the way we understand our salvation. That faith is a gift and not something we produced to help save ourselves. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. So if faith is not a work, then we can't feel any more deserving of God's love than anyone else than the next person that he hasn't given the gift of faith to. Or at least not yet. And of course, that's why we pray for people to be saved. Because God is a most generous and great gift giver. So thirdly then, pride corrected. Nebuchadnezzar had received God's warning in the dream and its interpretation through Daniel. But after a lengthening of his prosperity, he would now receive God's immediate discipline. Verse 31. The words were still on the king's lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar, your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives to anyone he wishes. So it's a very unique kind of humbling And here James Boyce comments that sometimes when we think of God dispensing judgments, we think of him acting somewhat arbitrarily as if he were merely going down a list of punishments to see what punishment he has left for some special sinner. Let's see now, he might muse. Nebuchadnezzar, what will it be? Not leprosy, not kidney stones, not paralysis, not goiter. Ah, here it is, insanity. That's what I'll use with Nebuchadnezzar. But God is not arbitrary. 
Everything God does is significant. So when God caused Nebuchadnezzar to be lowered from the pinnacle of human pride and glory to the baseness of insanity, it was God's way of saying that this is what happens to all who suppress the truth about God and take the glory of God for themselves. God judged Nebuchadnezzar with insanity and as a consequence of his insanity, he was reduced to bestial behavior. Close quote. Now, as you can see on the screen there, the footballer Zlatan Ibrahimovic is not the humblest of characters. I can't help but laugh at how perfect I am. Yet at a press conference, he finally appeared to display some humility about his team's chances with the statement, only God knows who will go through. But when the re reporter responded that it's hard to ask him, Zlatan replied, you're talking to him. SMH. Yes, Ibrahimovic is a good footballer, a great footballer even. But then again, he's never won the Champions League. And even Jimmy Traore has won the Champions League, the European Cup. And for those of you who know who Jimmy Traore is, then both of you will know that you never had one-tenth of the talent. So can you imagine the size of Zlatan's ego if he had won a really important trophy? So God has indeed a variety of non-arbitrary ways to humble the proud and give grace to the humble. Now, lockdown was tough on pretty much everyone, I think. Some lost health and wealth and loved ones. And most of us suffered under various levels of loneliness and frustration. We lost meeting together as a body of Christ, and some of us even the wish to meet together as a body of Christ. It was tough. Some of us also lost our sense of taste as a symptom of COVID. But none of us, I don't think, had to chew the cud during that time. And of that we can be thankful. Nebuchadnezzar, it says, however, was driven from among men and ate grass like a cow like an ox. But then again, he did display something of a lockdown haircut when it says it grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Verse 33. And then Nebuchadnezzar looked up to heaven at the end of seven times 
which could mean seven seasons, so just under two years, or it could mean just a period of completeness, and we really don't know how long his animal kind of life lasted. But when the time was complete, he lifted his eyes towards God in heaven, and his sanity returned. He came to his senses, or more accurately, God gave his senses back to him. And God restored him to grace and to his kingdom again. Just as Daniel had prophesied from the dream in verse 26. That after the tree that was Nebuchadnezzar had been felled, the stump of the tree would be left. The stump would be held captive with a band of iron and bronze, verse 23. But when released, it could always grow back. And the king's rule would be confirmed or restored when he acknowledged that heaven rules. So Daniel's warning to the king was a bit like Jesus' warning to Peter when he said that Peter would deny him. They were both told they were under a test that they would ultimately fail in order to display the sin of their hearts, to humble them. But both were also told that they would repent and be restored. Jesus did not say, if you turn, in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, but when you turn, strengthen your brothers. And in the Babylonian archives, there is a reference to this whole event but it seems purposely vague, probably because of how embarrassing it was for them, for their pride. So they mentioned that a sickness happened to Nebuchadnezzar towards the end of his life, and nothing more. Yet we know more. And it's remarkable that Nebuchadnezzar himself wrote this part of the scriptures in the first person. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So I think it's clear that Nebuchadnezzar wasn't embarrassed that his pride had been brought low. He doesn't sound reluctant at all to admit that the most high God had been right to discipline him 
in this great humbling event. And he seems grateful for mercy shown in his restoration. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So I would not be surprised one bit to see this guy in heaven. I think there's plenty of evidence of saving grace here as well as common grace in his worship of the true king. We can't be sure, but I would not be surprised. God didn't have to intervene in Nebuchadnezzar's life. He could have just left him in his own pride and wickedness in that Romans 1 style of being handed over and then judged later. Or God could have just had Nebuchadnezzar wiped out immediately like he did with his son, King Belshazzar, in Daniel 5. Belshazzar knew well the testimony of his father But as Daniel himself said in 5.22, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And then it says in verse 30, That very night, Belshazzar was killed. So could it be Just as in Romans 9, where God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. That Nebuchadnezzar I loved, Belshazzar I hated. I don't know. Certainly, as it says in Romans 9.15, that God has mercy on whom he has mercy. So we leave God to be God. And we just leave such things with him. But Nebuchadnezzar's descent before his glorious restoration was pretty deep. And however deep your descent into suffering may be right now, Know that your ascent is guaranteed. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. 1 Peter 5. 10. Brand that verse, if you can, into your heart. And see there 
that God will come to you personally and stoop to pull you out of that pain and suffering. That's an unbreakable promise to broken people. So lastly, then, pride resurrected. Now, you may have noticed that I skipped a verse at the end there that we'll return to now. Verse 36. So for all the praise that King Nebuchadnezzar gave to the King of Heaven, I think there's a bit of pride remaining. At the same time, my reason returned to me And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now that should not really surprise us. As I say, I think each of us is an odd mix of both pride and humility. And even in our best moments, we sure all display feet of clay. Agreed? So can a humble brag ever be truly humble? And is there any kind of bragging that is permitted? And if so, where can pride be legitimately resurrected? Well, permit me now to boast in my Redeemer. I will brag with all my heart of the one who rescued me, who suffered my hell for me, who on the cross descended into hell, as the Apostles' Creed says, that descent which was a lot lower than Nebuchadnezzar or you or I have ever known. As Paul said in Galatians 6.14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think you'll find that the best way to fight sinful pride is to go full bore in your cross of Christ boasting. Because as John Stott says, the truth is, We cannot boast in ourselves and in the cross simultaneously. Think about that. We cannot boast about the Savior slain for us and at the same time claim anything that we ourselves accomplished there. There is nothing positive that we contributed to that awful event or our great salvation in any way. 
So when we boast in the cross, we're pouring contempt on all our pride. Because you can't cross gaze and navel gaze simultaneously. This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. So by grace, I just want to cross gaze and Christ gaze for the rest of my days. Surely that's what you want too. Because Jesus Christ is the greater tree of Daniel 4, 20 and 21. It is his branches that fully stretch over the entire creation. And his beauty is evident to all his people. And under his leaves we find shelter. By his fruit we are fed. The Lord even directly likens himself to a tree in Hosea 14.8. I am like a tree, he says, that is always green. All your fruit comes from me. And the great thing about typology in the Bible is that it keeps on allowing us to gaze at Jesus. So even the tree of life itself is a type of which Christ is the antitype or fulfillment of. The tree of life first appeared in Genesis 2, 9 and then makes its final appearance in Revelation 22. And the tree of life symbolizes eternal life for us. And that eternal life can only be found in Jesus. Jesus alone is our life-giving tree. Christ is the true tree of life, wrote Francis Turretin, because as mediator, he is the prince of life, giving life to the world and eternal life in heaven by glory. For he is the resurrection and the life who will most certainly bestow upon his own eternal life. And as you know, in order to do that, our tree of life had to be cut down in his prime, hacked down by cruel men so that we could receive eternal life in exchange for our death. And then Jesus also had to be hung on a tree. And we read in Deuteronomy 21, 23 and Galatians 3, 13 that cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. a pronouncement originally made long before wooden crosses had been invented as instruments of capital punishment. 
and somewhat ironically, it was the Babylonians' eventual conquerors, the Persians, who invented them. But the cross was what Deuteronomy was ultimately pointing to. And on one, Christ would be hung and become a curse for us. So that all our sinful pride could be nailed to that tree and punished in full so we could go free. And not only did God the Son pay for all your pride, but he also gives you his perfect humility as well. Because though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That humility is your humility before God this morning. That sinless righteousness of Christ is your righteousness. It's his non-refundable gift to you. Because you are in Christ as a believer in him. So his perfect humility is yours. Can you believe in a God who loves you that much? If so, then you can be so proud of him. You can brag about him as much as you like. Because he'll never stop refreshing you by those victory spoils from the cross of Christ. Amen.